Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll be visiting with Michael Cannon, who is the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Rob Chatfield is the President and CEO of Free to Choose Network. They've come out with a new documentary on Thomas Sowell. So interesting. And Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep, will be joining us as well. It is March the 26th, and on this day in 1953, American medical researcher Dr. Jonas Salk announced on a national radio show that he'd successfully tested a vaccine against poliomyelitis, the virus that caused the crippling disease of polio. In 1952, an epidemic year for the polio, there were 58,000 new cases reported to the United States, and more than 3,000 died from the disease. We're promising eventually to eradicate the disease, which is known as infant paralysis, because it mainly affected children. Dr. Salk was celebrated as the great doctor benefactor of his time. Polio, which is a disease that has affected humanity throughout the recorded history, attacks the nervous system and can be caused, can cause varying degrees of paralysis. Since the virus is easily transmitted, epidemics were commonplace in the first decades of the 20th century. The first major polio epidemic in the United States occurred in Vermont, in the summer of 1894, and by the 20th century, thousands were affected every year. In the first decades of the 20th century, treatments were limited to quarantines and the infamous iron lung. I actually knew a guy who was an iron lung as a result of polio. A metal coffin-like contraption that aided respiration. Although children, especially infants, were among the worst affected, adults were also afflicted, including the future president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, from who in 1921 was stricken with polio at the age of 39 and was left partially paralyzed. Roosevelt later transformed his estate in Warm Springs, Georgia, into a recovery treat, retreat for polio victims and was instrumental in raising funds for polio-related research and the treatment of polio patients. Salk was born in New York City in 1914, conducted research on viruses until the 30s, when he was a medical student at the New York uh, at New York University, and during World War II, helped develop flu vaccines. In 1947, he became a head of research laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh, and in 1948, was awarded a grant to study the polio virus and develop a possible vaccine. By 1950, he had an early version of the polio vaccine already developed. His procedure first attempted unsuccessfully by American Maurice. Brody, in the 1930s, was to kill several strains of the virus and then inject the benign virus into the healthy person's bloodstream. The person's immune system would then create antibodies designed to resist future exposure to poliomyelitis. Saul conducted the first human trials on former polio patients and on himself and his family, and by 1953 he was ready to announce his findings. 
This occurred on CBS National Radio Network on the evening of March 25th, and two days later, in the article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Salk became an immediate celebrity. In 1954, clinical trials used by Salt vaccine and a placebo began on nearly 2 million American school children. In April 1955, it was announced that the vaccine was effective and safe, and a nationwide inoculation campaign began. Shortly thereafter, tragedy struck in western and midwestern United States where more than 200,000 people were injected with a defective vaccine manufactured at Cutter Laboratories in Berkeley, California. Thousands of polio cases were reported. 200 children were left paralyzed and 10 died. The incident delayed production of the vaccine, but a new polio case cases dropped to under 6,000. And in 1957, the first after the vaccine was widely available, the first year it was available, I should say, in 1962, an oral vaccine developed by Polish-American researcher Albert Sabin became available, greatly facilitating distribution of the polio vaccine. Today, there are just a handful of polio cases in the United States every year. Among other honors, Jonas Salk was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1977. He died in La Jolla, California in 1995. Great contribution to medicine, uh, the Salk vaccine. don't know if you watched President Joe Biden yesterday. gave his very first press conference in, after 65 days in, in office. He spoke to reporters, and, and, uh, and they were spaced out like every 12 feet or so, taking questions from a select few reporters on his list. In fact, he had a list of, uh, you could see the list that he had. It not only had the reporter's name, it had, I believe, the questions he was, that they were going to ask, and it had pictures of them just in case. Fox News' Peter Ducey, who had been provided some of the toughest questions to Press Secretary Jen Psaki, was not on the list. Biden took questions from 10 reporters during the first press conference of his presidency, including those from PBS, NBC, and Univision. Uh, but there was uh, he was up there. He was pretty much on his own. He had a list of reporters with their pictures. Usually, at the last few of these, uh, said Ducey, and the last one I can think of was like this, would have been in Wilmington. They had an aide off to the side with a list of reporters to call on today. Uh, it was Biden with the list, not the reporters or not the aide. And once they got through about an hour and 20 minutes, he was done. I'm not sure uh, if that was the end of the list. If, we were, uh, if they were done, I didn't make it that far, said Ducey. Much of the press conference had to do with immigration and Biden's policies as regards the, the crisis at the border. The current strategies of allowing all unaccompanied children under 18 to cross the border and be housed was addressed, as many have said it was uh, encouraged teens to come on their own and parents to send their young children. Even the far-left Trump hater Chris Wallace was shocked by Biden's performance. I have to say, I was also struck by the fact that it seemed on every foreign policy question, not the others, but on foreign policy, he went to his briefing book like Jen Psaki does sometimes in the briefings and was reading what was obviously White House guidance, White House talking points, that according to Chris Wallace. Wallace then said his comments in, in, in proper historical perspective, saying, covering Ronald Reagan for six years, I never saw that. Watching a lot of news conferences over the years, I've never seen a president at a news conference reading talking points. He did that on his, what he seemed every foreign policy question. 
Anyhow, I thought it was somewhat of a hoax. They certainly were lobbing up a lot of easy, easy questions and not touching on some of the key, the key issues. I quite frankly think that Biden misrepresented everything when it comes to immigration and what's happening on the border. Uh, he touched on, on the, on the uh, filibuster. Uh, he said, Kristen Walker of Embassy asked if the administration could commit to giving press access to the border detainment facilities. We haven't seen the facilities in which children are packed together, she asked. Would you commit to transparency? He said he would, but he gave no timeline for guaranteeing press access to border facilities. He said the reason he hasn't visited the border himself is that he didn't want to make to become the story himself. Walker asked if Biden rolled back Trump's policies too soon. He said he did not, that Trump's policies hadn't reduced the flood of illegal immigrants. He slammed Trump's policies and then their impact on human dignity. That's ridiculous. Trump had great policies. He said uh, he made a comment that he didn't want uh, Trump left kids starving on the other side of the border. That's simply not the case. Trump put them on airplanes and flew them back to their families. With regard to the filibuster, he just talked nonsense, double talk. And in answer to such another question on filibuster, he said, "Success, successful electoral politics is the art of the possible." He said it was a Jim Crow filibuster, and said the abuse of the rule should be dealt with first whatever that means. He continued down the list of uh, reporters that he planned to call on, including Miss Vega, who asked another question about immigration. A little boy, she said, who was nine, walked into the U.S. from Honduras, his mom, who told Vegas uh, on the phone that she sent her son because Biden was welcoming border policies. Had welcoming border policies. Well, look, he said, staring off into space, the idea is, as I'm going to say, which I would never do, that if I'm unaccompanied minors came to the border, we're going to let them stay and starve on the other, and not starve on the other side. I'm not going to do that, he said. In other words, he was just double-talking. In any event, it was about an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, when he was done, he just packed up his book and took off. Uh, had uh, major notes for almost every question. It looked to me like uh, every question was pretty much planted, so he knew who the reporter was going to be and what questions they were going to ask. Even then, he stumbled and had difficulty uh, following his notes. Uh, just not very impressive at all. Hard to believe this guy is our president of the United States. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. 
Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. The website is golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Robert Chatfield. Rob is the uh, CEO of Free to Choose Network. Right now we have with us William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. We're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. I hope you'll check it out. So uh, yesterday, uh, the president gave his first press conference in 65 days as president of the United States. Uh, it went on for about an hour and 20 minutes. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, I thought he did fine, given how highly staged, or he did fine even if it was a highly staged event. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, more so than even uh, pre-Trump. He had friendly reporters up front. He had unfriendly reporters in the back. He had a cue card with the list of reporters, including a, a little face next to the reporter that he was going to call. Um, he had binders in front of him. So a uh, highly staged, highly managed affair that I think he escaped any gaffes. Um, overall, I guess my impressions, my first impression would be sort of the same one I had about the uh, the ABC interview that I spoke of last Friday, which was uh, the Trump scapegoating is getting old now that, you know, he's, he's months into his own presidency. Um, he even at one point joked, God, I miss him, mm -hmm. referring to Trump, among yeah. many other references. So 
that is, again, getting old. Um, the other big takeaway was just the dramatic and almost comedic change in the, the tone of questions. Um, his second question, the second question put forth by the media yesterday, and this is from the PBS political correspondent, and I'm not lying here. Uh, this, is, this is no joke, um, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing only lightly, but the, the question was, in essence, uh, sir, so many immigrants are coming here um, because you are such a moral and decent man, even though you told them not to. How do you resolve this tension? Um, and that, that is, uh, you know, so that, that was sort of indicative of uh, most of the questions. Yeah. And certainly a 180-degree turn from the sort of moralizing and grandstanding that we saw from the likes of um, Jim Acosta uh, and among others during the Trump era. So, you know, I thought that was uh, uh, an interesting contrast. Absolutely. Well, and to me, I mean, he misrepresented my, my view of what's happening on the border said basically that the kids that are that are here alone we're going to keep them and keep them safe only uh, and uh, we do need to get that issue resolved otherwise we're sending everybody home well that's just plain not true i mean the the fact of the matter is the borders are open and people are coming through in droves and he basically said uh, come on up here he didn't say I, he didn't invite them up he basically said what was the word that he used i've forgotten right now but uh, you're welcome to come it's what was the whole idea of it and and now I mean, we had agreements with Mexico and with the uh, these countries in, in the Central America in order to uh, resolve the issue, and uh, Biden undid all that, and now we're paying a big price. Well, I'll say this. I mean, I, I can't speak directly to immigration policy just because that's not my bailiwick. Mm. Um, however, I will say, the, the, kind of continuing with the theme of, of how the media has treated the two presidents, the past two presidents, differently, um, you know, how would we know what's going on at the border, given that there is largely a media blackout imposed by this administration that purports to be one of the most transparent ever? Um, so it was... Uh, if Trump had, had, say, barred reporters from uh, the border and from government activities uh, thereon, I, I can't imagine the moralizing of the endless socio social media outrage that would ensue. Um, and when Biden does it, it just doesn't seem to engender the same sort of um, outrage, uh, I guess for obvious reasons, but I, I do think the border media blackout presents yet another example of, of that stark contrast. So he made it through the process, and uh, it was about an hour and 20 minutes. Again, as you pointed out, he had, had his books, he had his notes, every, he was totally prepared. Uh, but right now, where you've got this other program, this infrastructure program that's raising its ugly head, about another $3 trillion, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that Congress just spent five, about $5 trillion on various COVID stimulus that we've spoken about in the past, mm -hmm. and that our national debt is approaching $30 trillion. Uh, notwithstanding these facts, the Biden administration, uh, and this was yesterday, um, not part and parcel of the press conference, but instead uh, Peter Buttigieg did the Department of Transportation um, testimony before Congress, but notwithstanding the $5 trillion on COVID, notwithstanding the $30 trillion in uh, uh, approaching for the national debt, the administration is seeking a generational investment um, in infrastructure. 
um, which is, you know, like how many generational investments, what generation are we talking about? I, mean, mm-hmm. I guess we've already mortgaged our children's future and our grandchildren's future. Are we talking about our great-grandchildren's future now? Um, and as we've spoken, details have emerged about the administration's quote-unquote infrastructure plan. Uh, we've spoken about this dynamic in the past, how it has so little to do with infrastructure. So in addition to the roads and bridges, um, the administration is seeking $3 trillion for um, climate change, for broadband access, for universal pre-K education, for um, uh, free community college tuition, um, and paid family leave, I mean, amongst a bunch of other uh, uh, progressive kind of a grab bag of wish list. Um, so how would they pay for this? That they, They're setting forth a slew of tax hikes, um, or hiking, uh, raising the corporate rate, um, an increase on uh, those uh, the income taxes for those who make greater than $40,000 a year, higher capital gains taxes. Even with all those tax increases, that would only pay for two-thirds of the $3 trillion proposal. So they're, they're still, on top of that, asking for Congress to borrow a trillion dollars more, notwithstanding those debt figures that I cited at the outset. So yeah. this is, uh, I, I, it's sort of, uh, it's happening so fast, it's such a breakneck speed, um, that that in and of itself is disconcerting. But when you actually look at the numbers, I mean, it should make one's head explode. So this is very disconcerting, um, sort of the, kind of the free nature with which these huge sums of number of money of yeah. expenditures are being bandied about in Washington, D.C., but they appear to be, uh, you know, again, full speed ahead and willing to use that reconciliation process that allows them to proceed in Congress without a single Republican vote. Yeah, and uh, one of the policies they proposed is uh, not as, uh, I think it's tied perhaps to the expansion of Medicaid. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but ne- nevertheless, it's the, it's prevents states from an enacting tax cuts going forward. Well, shoot, that was actually part of the $2 trillion stimulus, um, COVID stimulus that was just passed. Um, so uh, you know, I should note that that's part of, of $5 trillion total in COVID stimulus that Congress has passed over the last wow. um, year and a half or so. But what you speak of is a very controversial measure, uh, again, in the recently passed $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus. What it does is, it, in essence, um, says that mandates for any states that tap that $350 billion-dollar pool of money for local governments um, that was largely unnecessary. Um, but it says that any state that taps that cannot raise, cannot use that money to raise taxes directly or indirectly, and that indirectly is where the, the, the devil, where the details lie. Um, so that, in essence, prevents, um, would prevent any local government, state, um, or, you know, county or municipal government from taking that money and then, in effect, raising taxes for four years. And this is patently unconstitutional. Mm. I mean, it's not that Congress can't condition money. It's that Congress has to be express, explicit, specific when it does so. It it can't use these amorphous terms like um, the indirect effects of spending. Um, So the upshot is this has caused all sorts of outrage in states uh, across the country, Republican and Democrat, 21 states sent a letter to the administration objecting to this policy, um, this provision of the COVID stimulus. And last week, Ohio became the first state to sue 
um, over this measure. And I, I, you know, for the reasons I've set forth before, I think they've probably, probably got a, they've got a very good shot. The constitutional jurisprudence militates in their favor. Um, but I don't think they'll be the first state to sue. Uh, I think that many more will be coming down the pike, and that's actually a pretty darn big deal. Um, that, and I'll note just as an aside, from a, a procedural standpoint, it's ridiculous that Congress would insert, or that the Democrat majority in the House and Senate would insert such a profoundly, uh, but, you know, this is a big provision. It, it, it's shackling the states, all 50 yeah. states, their ability to, to exercise tax increases or decreases, um, which is a key sovereign power. The long and short of it is, this was inserted at the last second. Um, but none of the Republicans actually knew they were voting upon this. I mean, granted, they opposed the bill, but none of the Democrats knew they were voting for it because they didn't have time to read the bill. No kidding. Um, but this is the sort of legislative shenanigans that passes for uh, business as usual in today's Congress. Yeah, unfortunately, um, I mean, the, it, this is an attempt, I think, just to get rid of states' rights, quite frankly, and to federalize everything that's happening. William Yateman, again, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Michael Cannon. He is a uh, uh, director of health studies at the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, 
Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I hope you'll check out Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can find out more by visiting choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit, visit with Rob Chatfield. He's the president and CEO of Free to Choose Network. Right now we have with us Michael Cannon. Michael is the uh, director of health studies at the Cato Institute. Mike, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Bob. So, um, Michael, uh, I understand you wrote a column for uh, the Wall Street Journal yesterday and uh, about uh, the access of drugs for the Americans across the United States. What, what, what would, tell us about your, your column and what your thoughts are. So every, regulat- every country has its own regulatory body that decides whether a drug manufacturer can bring their drug to market in that country. Here in the United States, it's the Food and Drug Administration. In Europe, it's the European Medicines Agency. There's Health Canada north of our border. And they move at different paces. And so it often happens that a drug will be approved in another country before it is available here in the United States. And what I wrote about was how often this dynamic leaves American patients uh, without access to drugs that are available in other countries. And I talked about uh, the example of Tommy Gogolak. Now, if any of your, if any of your listeners are from the New York area, they may recognize the name Gogolak because Tommy's father was a place kicker for the New York Giants. Sure. And he was, he's still the New York Giants all-time leading scorer. But Tommy has, uh, it has epilepsy for a long time. They had difficulty controlling these very dramatic grand mal seizures that he would have. And they didn't get them under control until they found a drug called Frigium or Clobazam. And what this drug did was it completely eliminated his seizures. But it wasn't available in the United States. They had to buy it from Canada, which was illegal. The FDA was trying to block them from getting this drug that they needed. Uh. Fortunately, they had the means to keep ordering the drug no matter how many times the FDA uh, had, the, had the customs officials seize it at the border uh, until they finally got Tommy the medicine that he needs. And he's been seizure-free. And that was back in the 1990s. But the FDA didn't uh, approve it until 2011, and in those intervening years, the FDA was actually trying to deny Tommy his most important health care right, which is the right to make his own health decision. Well, that's just one example, but I think there's many, many examples. of. And of course, the President Trump passed the, and I've forgotten what the name of the law was, but it makes uh, drugs uh, accessible that uh, perhaps haven't been fully approved for people that might have it as the last hope or the last opportunity to save their lives. But aside from that, there's still, I mean, uh, we operate a lot more slowly than other uh, countries when it comes to drug approval. Why is that? Well, the FDA is an incredibly risk-averse agency, and the reason is that when the FDA harms someone by letting an unsafe drug through, that person, uh, if they survive, they can testify before Congress uh, or their their family, if they don't, their families will, and it shines a bright light on this mistake that the FDA has made. But if the FDA delays a drug, requires more and more testing, uh, and hurts people because, like Tommy Goglak, because it keeps that drug off the market, uh, then it's much harder to know. I mean, you never heard the name Tommy Goglak. No. Uh, it's much harder to know when the FDA is hurting somebody, and so the FDA doesn't get as much criticism for that. Other regulatory bodies in other countries sort of face the same incentives, 
but they move at different paces or uh, still approve different drugs uh, before the others do, and it creates these situations where you have a willing seller of a very beneficial drug, and our own government is keeping us, uh, keeping patients who would benefit from that drug from buying it, and that violates their health care rights. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, the, they're being harmed by the lack of activity, not by the approval of the of the drug. I guess this all goes back to the approval of thalidomide back in the day when children were being born without limbs and so forth. Probably has something to do with that. Well, it does. That's part of the reason why the FDA is so risk averse is because the FDA kept thalidomide off of the U.S. market, and they want to follow that model because the outcomes were so horrific there. But the outcomes of delaying or uh, blocking access to drugs are also horrific. Mm -hmm. If Tommy Goglak did not have access to Clovazam, he would have been suffering from very serious grand mal seizures. And it's not an inactivity on the FDA's part here. The, the U.S. government took action. They seized the medicine that the Goglaks were trying to buy from Canada at the border so that the Goglaks could not get them. Unbelievable. And then, you know, and that's just one example. I mean, I'm sure there's many, many life-saving drugs that are available or disease-preventing or, or, you know, pain-preventing uh, medicines that are available around the world that aren't available here in the United States. Another dramatic example, if we go back uh, 10 years before Tommy Goldblatt's first experience, is the AIDS epidemic. Do you remember the movie Dallas Fires Club? That was all about AIDS patients who... who uh, the FDA was denying their right to decide on their own course of treatment, uh, taking matters into their own hands, going to other countries, buying the drugs that they thought might uh, offer them some hope. Uh, and it's, it's a story of civil disobedience of people trying to reassert their rights uh, in spite of a government who's trying to deny them those rights. And you're right, there are more uh, current examples of this as well. Uh, there's a study back in the early part of uh, uh, the, of this millennium, to the first decade of this millennium, that found that there were 37 drugs available in, in Canada or Europe that were not available in the United States, and there weren't any real substitutes for these drugs here in the United States either. In fact, uh, for 10 of those drugs, there were no treatments for the diseases that these drugs were targeting. Yeah. So, so, so this continues to happen. Well, so, let, Michael, the, right now we had uh, Operation Warp Speed. We saw a drug approval in record rate. So they said it couldn't be done. The president, of course, uh, used his leverage and his influence in order to make it happen. Do you think that will have any impact on the speed of uh, drug approval here in the United States? Hopefully it will. Yesterday, I've been wanting to announce to you, Bob, yesterday I finally got my first dose of the Moderna vaccine. This is the vaccine that was available within days of or that they had uh, developed within <clears throat> days or weeks of sequencing the uh, novel coronavirus' genome, but we couldn't access it in the United States uh, for uh, the better part of a year. Now, it, usually it will take years and years, and for many drugs, up to 15 years, mm -hmm. uh, in order to get it through the FDA's approval process. The FDA expedited this process. Uh, there are concerns you and I have discussed about uh, whether... Uh, what implications, if any, that has for the drug safety, because you do learn more about the safety profile of the drug the more time you take to test it, the more subjects you get it to. 
but what this does show is millions of people have taken this and the other vaccines that the FDA has approved on an expedited basis. And the side effects have been minimal. Now, you can't test long-term side effects in the short term. Right. But so far, the side effects have been minimal. And this suggests that uh, not only that the FDA can approve a lot of drugs faster, but maybe there's a better way of doing it than the way the FDA has been doing it where you require two large randomized controlled trials that can take years and years. You, you require an entire process takes 15 years and $2 billion to approve a new drug. Maybe uh, there are other ways where uh, you give the public access to a drug and let them decide how much evidence is enough, uh, how, how much evidence is enough for them to determine for themselves that the benefits of the drug outweigh the risks. And, uh, and maybe part of that process is allowing them to participate in clinical trials yeah. uh, as, as the drug is available on the market yeah. to others who wish to take it outside of the clinical Yeah, trial. great information here. Again, Michael Cannon, uh, IH Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Really appreciate this commentary, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime, Bob. Thank you. All right, coming up. We're going to visit with Rob Chatfield from the Free to Choose Network. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in the commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. 
Coming up, we're going to visit with Dave Beagle, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. Right now, we have with us Rob Chatfield. He's the president and CEO of a terrific organization. It's called Free to Choose Network. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, always a pleasure and great to hear you. Well, thank you, Rob. Tell us about Free to Choose Network. Well, we are the organization that brought you Milton Friedman's Free to Choose over 40 years ago, still going strong today. So we uh, produce public television documentaries, and then we take those documentaries and we slice them and dice them to make classroom teaching lessons. So these uh, teachers basically can choose and, and use you as a resource for some of their uh, teaching materials. I guess you would you'd classify yourself as being uh, nonpartisan? We are nonpartisan. I was going to say, and uh, specifically, uh, we, we emphasize those things that aren't being taught in schools in terms of free enterprise, personal responsibility. Um, but, you know, so people who try to label us as something uh, may say, oh, because uh, uh, one political party uh, uh, is uh, leaning towards that direction, these people must be political. But none of our stuff is political. And, in fact, we go out of our way to, to try to not use any politicians within any, any of the videos. But uh, you also focus on things like, for example, civics and areas that where perhaps most curriculums may not go. Very much so, as I said. So we, we've always espoused this concept that people who have uh, personal freedom, political freedom, and economic freedom tend to be more happy, healthy, wealthy than those who do not. Absolutely. So, Rob, I had the opportunity to, re- to view uh, your documentary on Thomas Sowell, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, maybe you can tell us about it. Sure. Uh, the uh, uh, genesis of this actually came from, you know, Milton Friedman was a, a Hoover scholar, and we've done a lot of stuff with the Hoover Institute over time. But uh, most people, uh, Thomas Sowell will tell you that probably 95% of America has no clue who he is. Right. And we decided we wanted to make this film essentially to introduce Thomas Sowell to those people who'd never heard of him before. If somebody's looking for a Thomas Sowell's greatest hits, they'll be able to find all sorts of great quotes and things of that nature uh, on, the, on the Internet. But uh, what we were looking to do realistically was just to show how did Tom Sowell become Tom Sowell? How did somebody come up with that perspective in terms of how he approaches uh, his research, how he came up with his, his own philosophies? The man started off as a Marxist. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he went to uh, the University of Chicago, he studied with Milton Friedman, and he left the University of Chicago as a Marxist. So when people think of, uh, of Tom Sowell being a, uh, you know, somebody who's a, a conservative, if you will, uh, you know, and that he went to the University of Chicago because it's one of those conservative types of schools, that was a complete misnomer. Uh, Tom Sowell, as I said, was, was a, a avowed Marxist, and he really went to the University of Chicago to try to figure out how to become a better Marxist by yeah. being able to know the arguments from the other side and, uh, and how to better frame his arguments. So what's so interesting, though, he, after uh, school, he, he went to work for the government and worked for the Department of Labor. I believe it was on uh, the minimum wage. And he said the reason what switched his mind, what changed his mind to become a conservative, he said, are the facts. Because what he understood is uh, the Department of Labor was interested in the best programs for people. They were actually pushing and had an agenda for the programs that they, that they had, uh, for example, things like the minimum wage. And it was, uh, I was going to say, that was his eye-opener in terms of the fact that pe- people do have their own agenda and organizations have their own agenda. And, and Tom Sowell went from there, and really, this, that's where the University of Chicago helped him out. 
he really was able to try, take and, and frame his stuff by going and finding what the facts were. And wherever those facts took him for his conclusion, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And if that opinion was going to be contrary to the popular opinion, and if it was going to be very unpopular, uh, then so be it. That's what Thomas Sowell was going to do. He's going to go find the facts first and then let the facts lead him to the conclusion. Yeah, so just taking a step back, for those of our listeners that may not be familiar with Thomas Sowell, uh, it's this documentary is well worth watching. He has such an inspirational and interesting life. He grew up in a very poor family, as I recall. They didn't even have, they didn't even have an indoor bathroom when he, in the home that he grew grew up in. His parents died at a young age. He was raised by relatives, and uh, he went on to do great things. I think he actually served in the Marine Corps, if I recall the documentary correctly and uh, went to the University of Chicago and had a great teaching uh, career, ended up uh, at the, what's the Hudson Institute? I've forgotten now. But uh, he wrote... Uh, Hoover. The Hoover Institute, thank you. He wrote, well, hundreds, I don't want to exaggerate, uh, maybe thousands, but hundreds and hundreds of columns of documentaries about uh, economics and about uh, our culture. He focused not only on economics but cultural issues, and uh, that's how most people know him, but his life was so interesting. And I think uh, when you hit on that one, where he, uh, Thomas Sowell wrote on, on things of culture and race specifically, uh, and Thomas Sowell will tell you that that wasn't really what he wanted to do. He didn't want to write on some of those issues, but he felt that his voice uh, uh, could make a difference in that arena. And I think that that's something, uh, in terms of what your, uh, your listeners out there today, again, the film's Thomas Sowell, Common Sense in a Senseless World. And Tom Sowell realized that the, that the popular orthodoxy uh, just wasn't so. And so when he started writing about race and cultures, it wasn't just talking about uh, you know, black, white America, if you will. Tom Sowell went out and did research uh, around the world and he was trying to figure out what happens in terms of people and their cultures. Do those cultures migrate with those people also? And I think his work has just been fascinating over the years in terms of how he has approached the topic. Yeah, Rob, great summary. And uh, I would just encourage our, our listeners, uh, again, the name of the uh, video is Thomas Sowell, uh, Life, a Sense in a Senseless World, was it? I've, I've forgotten now that... Uh, a common sense in a senseless world. Common sense, Thomas Sowell, common sense in a senseless world. It's a great view. And I, also, if you have young people in your life, high school uh, or college age, even junior high school, I think it's, it is just so interesting to hear a black man talk about the nonsense and to hear uh, Thomas Sowell's point, points of view on th- things like racism. So interesting, so fascinating, especially in today's culture and today's economy. Yeah, and we've always thought uh, Tom Sowell was sort of an unsung hero because this is somebody who does not go out and seek the limelight. Right. Uh, our host for the film, Jason Riley, is the uh, Wall Street Journal a Wednesday columnist. He's also a, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And, and Jason is Thomas Sowell's authorized biographer. He has a book coming out in May uh, called Maverick, actually, is, is the name of his book. But uh, Jason was the one who really sort of uh, spearheaded to try to go through, uh, to, to, as he said, you know, uh, we want to take a deeper dive into who Tom Sowell was yeah. and who Tom Sowell is. And I think that that's one of those things that's just sort of a separator with regards to what we tried to do was, again, Tom was not going to go out and, and beat his own chest and, and go out and try to do, you know, 
big publicity tour or something like this right. around who he is. Uh, Tom Sowell would much rather just write another book, even at the age of 91. Yeah, in fact, he was almost inaccessible to reporters. In fact, uh, Jason Riley, of course, wrote, uh, Please uh, Stop Helping Us. Or, I forgot the exact name of the title of the book, but anyhow, he's a... Uh, the senior, uh, one of the senior editors at the Wall Street Journal as well. Rob, I just genuinely appreciate the work that you do. Again, it's a free-to-choose network, and it's Thomas Sowell, uh, Common Sense in a Senseless World. I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Bob, always a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep, that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board. Just one of the programs is providing policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. You can find out more by visiting thefga.org. We have with us Dave Bigo, as I mentioned before the break. Uh, he's the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. It, uh, it's a book about the travails of dealing with union bosses over the course of two and a half years, all their dirty tricks to try and get him to sign a neutrality agreement which sounds pretty benign, but it's not. It would have given him, uh, the union bosses, permission to sign up one by one his employees until they had 50 percent plus one, which would make them unionized. He said, "No, if you're going to unionize my company, Executive Management Services, over 6,000 employees, you're going to have to do it through secret ballot." Well, they uh, demurred. They finally just left. 
because they realized they probably couldn't pull that off. And uh, so he wrote a book about it. It's called The Devil at Our Doorstep. You can go to the devilatourdoorstep.com is the website. Dave, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bob. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. So I always look to you for union news and what's happening with regard to the unions. And gosh, we, you certainly can see a lot of support for unions from uh, this administration. What's Any new thoughts? Well, yeah, and Ian, you're right. This administration is fully supported by the unions. In fact, the unions control the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, they're trying to get the uh, PRO Act, which I've talked to you about before, passed. And it's already been passed in the House, and uh, it's going to be going to the Senate. Hmm. And um, the, um, the PRO Act basically uh, puts into place the card check, the neutrality agreement that the, the union tried to use against us, the SEIU. And, um, um, you know, allow them to force unionize people across the country. And, um, and as part of that PRO Act, too, it'll, it'll let um, uh, union bosses and, and their people uh, come on employers' private property and, and, and go in there anytime they want, spend as much time as they want to, you know, talk to uh, employers' employees and, you know, and brainwash them and get them to sign cards and stuff like that. And um, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's a sad thing, Bob, and it, it could really turn this country totally around uh, into a uh, country that's controlled by the far left, and um, we need to get it stopped. And here's the other problem, though. You know, it's going to the Senate, mm. and, um, you know, right now it would be hard for it to probably get passed in the Senate with the filibuster in place. But with Biden trying to uh, get rid of the filibuster, which he talked about last night again, um, you know, on TV, um, that would allow them to uh, get the um, PRO Act passed quickly if they eliminate the, the uh, filibuster and really turn our nation into a far left country. Yeah, uh, I share your concerns, Dave. And I, did you watch the uh, did you watch the press conference yesterday? Yeah. You did so. <laughs> I did too. I don't know how many people did, but uh, I think it was probably lightly attended when it comes to a TV audience. But uh, when it comes to the filibuster, I thought his responses were pretty confusing. In fact, he was he was double talking most of the time. Well, yeah. Well, you know, for years, as as he was involved in in government, uh, he supported the filibuster. But now, all of a sudden, he's saying no, he doesn't. And we need to get rid of it. And that's because behind the scenes, uh, Biden is being controlled by the far left and the union people. And, uh, you know, he, he's just the face mask on TV. You know, Kamala Harris and um, uh, Obama and others are the ones that are really controlling uh, what he does and, you know, his legislation and all that kind of stuff and what's going on down the border. Um they're controlling all this stuff. No, no question. I mean, I mean, he just plain out lied about what's happening at the border. Uh, non-transparent, first of all. But second of all, uh, the, everything that was, it was working perfectly under uh, President Trump. He had these agreements with Mexico and with the uh, uh, Central American countries. Uh, they would, And they were cooperating. They were working with the United States. He decided to rescind all of those agreements, and then then he invited he, he literally invited people to come across the border, and uh, it's no wonder that we're having the chaos that we're having right now. Well, that's right, but he's being controlled behind the scenes, and you know the unions uh, years ago were in favor of that and uh, wanted people coming across the border, 
um, for, for two reasons. One, uh, they get these uh, uh, people that aren't registered to vote and everything to go in and go into voting stations anyway. They're controlled by the unions, and they let them vote anyway for the Democratic Party. And then the other thing is they get these uh, people employed in uh, companies and um you know, because a lot of these companies, some of these big, big tech and other companies, they want them, um, so they can hire cheap employees. And uh, the unions see it the other way. Well, yeah, we'll let you hire cheap employees, but down the road, what they're going to do is force unionize them. Force unionize, and of course, this is going to be detrimental. This is going to hurt the uh, working class tremendously. What's going on right now at the border? Uh, the policies he planned, uh, you hear uh, President Biden talk about supporting the, the little guy, not supporting the little guy at all. In fact, what he's doing is very detrimental uh, to, work, to the working class people right now. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, and, and, and they talk out of both, they're hypocritical, Bob. They talk out of both sides of their mouth. And, you know, they, you know, they talk about what you just said, but on this side, they say, well, we got to increase minimum wage to $15 an hour. Uh, but by bringing these people across the border, what they're doing is uh, decreasing wages across the country. And um, what's what's really happened is um, uh, since Trump closed the borders and that and increased the economy, wages are really going up. And uh, people are already making up close to $15 an hour and, and a big percentage of jobs across the country. But what he's doing now, he, he's going to take wages to move the other way. Well, I would say this, what's going to happen is that's going to reduce the number of jobs. It's going to put more people on food stamps, more people on welfare, which is basically the model, isn't it? I mean, basically to get people dependent on the government and to obviously then vote for the Democrat Party who will pay, who are supporting paying food stamps and welfare. Well, that's right. And, you know, they're giving this extra money, like $1,400 now to these people and stuff like that. And I have to tell you, Bob, um, it is hard all across the country for all businesses, including us, to find people who uh, want to work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Dave Beagle, again, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. I'm going to encourage you to go to thedevilatourdoorstep.com. Get a copy of the book. When you read it, you can't believe people, human beings, can actually stoop to the level that these union bosses do. But the dirty tricks that they play on Dave's customers on uh, his on families on uh, his employees it's just amazing stuff it's a it's a must read and again the devil at our doorstep uh, dot com is the website the devil at our doorstep is the book dave always appreciate your commentary here in the on the show thank you so much for joining us well thanks and uh you know my book is a is a perfect example of what this, this administration is doing absolutely it is thank you dave well, that's a wrap here in today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Monday, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, as we usually do. Uh, we're going to be talking about current global affairs. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll visit with Larry. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau chief and author of several books, will be with us as well. Uh, I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at Harden at hotmail.com. If you'd like to be on the distribution list of my newsletter that I send out after every show, again, just to put in the request on your, on your email, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks.
so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>